Welcome to Keith and I Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today, I'm joined by the director of the Libertarian Institute, Scott Horton, to discuss his book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, a collection of interviews with Daniel Ellsberg, Seymour Hirsch, and many others. I can't pronounce those other names. Who are they again? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, there's some good ones right there. So um, uh, after Hirsch is Gar Alperowitz, who is a famous historian and has written, I believe, two major books on the decision to nuke Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how it was all about scaring Stalin and that kind of thing. Um, and then after him is Hans Christensen from the Federation for American Scientists and I think CIPRI. And, uh, and then Joe Serencioni, who's formerly at the Plowshares Fund, who's now at the Quincy Institute, is a great uh, anti-nuclear expert. But then uh, if you saw the tweet thread this morning, you see there's something like, well, what's the table of contents here? And there are some, some people are, um, are interviewed more than once, but there are, um, oh, I'm going to guess uh probably like 25 or 30 different people interviewed in here and you know just like with fools there and keith it's the book is not just the case for getting out of afghanistan it's my history of the war in afghanistan right um mm -hmm. and same with enough already it's not a polemic about like my opinion is we should stop this it's my version of the history of the last 40 years by the end of it you'll agree with the subtitle right but that's really only the last page is we ought to get the hell out and we ought to stop this, right? So, but that's the title of the book because, you know, for whatever effect it can have, I, I want that statement to be up front that, like, that's the point is to quit this. So, Got same it. here. Uh, this book covers all different aspects of nuclear weapons and nuclear warfare and the nuclear weapons lobby and the nuclear programs of the so-called rogue states in the Middle East, including Israel um, and also North Korea, of course. Um, and, um, and also we talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then all the anti-nuclear activism and all of that. But yes, like a, one common thread throughout the book is that it really doesn't have to be this way at all. Um, we kind of have this idea that it just goes without saying from now on, well, now that there's nukes, the most powerful nations have to hold them at each other's head forever to keep the peace in this sort of Mexican standoff with H-bombs. And that otherwise, it would be full-scale war in Europe again. It'd be full-scale war everywhere. And I don't think that's right. And I think that even though people make the argument that mutually assured destruction has kept the peace, um, you know, over the last 70 years, since the Soviets got their hands on nukes as well, um, I think you could make a credible case that if they hadn't got their hands on nukes, America might have nuked them and just invaded the Soviet Union. Um, but once they got nukes, that prevented that from happening. And they haven't been used in anger since Japan. And yet, if that ever fails and mutual assured destruction, you know, um, breaks down and somebody's bluff is called, then the consequences of that maybe low risk possibility are so high and so drastic that it should really be the highest priority of all political leaders in the world and, and of the populations of the planet to seek nuclear disarmament. And you know what? I'm not a hippie and I'm not a utopian. And I know that this is 1940s technology and you can't uninvent it. Uh, however, it's really difficult to make a nuke. It's essentially impossible for a sub-state actor to do it. Maybe a major corporation in a powerful Western country could do it. 
but not in secret they couldn't not really and get away with it. it's just impossible to do so um if you have you know if it's outlawed globally uh by treaty then you can have an inspections regime that could essentially ensure nobody's cheating and if anybody does try to cheat and make a nuke well then you'd have to deal with that too but it's just like you know there are treaties outlawing slavery and so forth that you know if you want to be a member of the international community private slavery has to be illegal in your country and there is still slavery in the world particularly in africa and in the middle east um and so but that doesn't mean you just give up on having those laws it means that you try to work better to have them implemented and set people free. So, um, and, and frankly, you know, I could say this up front too. Maybe I'm ruining your whole interview here, Keith. But um, part of the story here is that Ronald Reagan almost made a deal with Mikhail Gorbachev in 1986. And this is two years before the wall came down. This is before anyone thought the Soviet Union would cease to exist. The Cold War was coming to an end. Reagan had decided he wanted, you know, he had been a real uh, player in brinksmanship in his first term. And then it was a few different things affected him and, and changed his mind. And he essentially decided he was on a mission from God, like the Blues Brothers, to abolish nuclear weapons and to uh, off the face of the earth. And Joe Serencioni tells the story in the book because he talked with George Schultz and George Schultz told him the whole story. He was Reagan's secretary of state. The only people in the room Gorbachev, the translators, Reagan, and Schultz. And Reagan said, all right, Gorbachev, let's just get there in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, 1986. And he says, let's just get rid of all the short and medium range missiles. This is after he just, they had both poured thousands in. I mean, not Gorbachev, but the Soviets had poured thousands of mid-range missiles into Europe. And then Reagan matched them by pouring in all the Pershing missiles and all this. People are terrified it's going to lead to nuclear war. So Reagan says, let's get rid of all these. And this ended up leading to the INF Treaty, the one that Trump only broke a couple of years ago and that Putin insisted we get back in and Biden refused uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty of 1987. But Reagan said, let's get rid of all the short range and medium range missiles. And Gorbachev says, all right, hey, let's get rid of all the long range missiles too. Everything. And Reagan turns to Schultz and says, can we do that? And Schultz says, you're damn right, Mr. President, we can do that. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. And they said, all right, well, let's start talking about this. What would be the frame of the thing? How are we going to do the thing? And part of Gorbachev's insistence was that we would have to abandon the missile shield. Well, if we get rid of all the missiles, then who needs Star Wars anyway? And of course, it didn't work. I mean... If I told you in the year 2022, yeah, we're going to put all these space-based lasers up there that are going to destroy all the incoming nukes, you'd be like, Horton, don't give me that crap. You're just going to waste a couple of trillion, right? Like, it's bogus 40 years in the future. It's still bogus, right? In 1986, this is the most ridiculous fantasy, that they're going to have a missile shield, a nuclear umbrella, like, not will protect you by threatening retaliation on your behalf, but somehow we would have an umbrella that would protect the United States of America from ICBMs being able to detonate over our cities. This is just a lie. And so what happened was, you will be surprised to know, Keith, it was Richard Pearl and some of the others and, and, and um, there others involved are named in the book as well. But Richard Pearl, the so-called Prince of Darkness, who was 
one of the major ringleaders of the neoconservative plot to lie us into war with Iraq in 2002, just as important as Paul Wolfowitz. That same guy helped convince Reagan that, no, if you do this, you'll be betraying your promise to the American people to build them a missile shield. Again, no missiles, no need for a shield. So who cares? And not that this appeased the neocons, because for the rest of the Reagan term, Norman Podhoritz and all of his men called Ronald Reagan Neville Chamberlain appeasing Hitler at Munich as he was ending the Cold War and dissolving the USSR, essentially. Um, they're calling him Neville Chamberlain and a weakling and, and all of this stuff. So it didn't buy him any goodwill with those hawks. And, and frankly, he ruined the best chance. He was a hair away from abolishing nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. So that I'll tell you right there, when Ronald Reagan and George Shultz are working with Mikhail Gorbachev, when nobody even knows that the USSR is going to cease to exist at all, people imagined at that time, I was old enough then, I can tell you, at that time, the idea was the Soviet Union would live past the year 2000 and into the 21st century, and no one knew exactly what was going to happen, but the whole thing was just going to dissolve. You know, Justin Romando and a very few other people were saying that in 1986. Almost no one was saying that in 1986, not certainly in, you know, broader understanding in the popular culture at all. Um, and and they were willing to do it anyway. And then the idea would was not magic, right? It's not Superman 4. He's just going to come and get rid of everything, take care of everything for us. It would have been, uh, first of all, incumbent on the Americans and the Soviets to dismantle all of our nukes down to about 200. That way we have the same as everybody else. The British, the, the uh, French, the um, Chinese, the Israelis, the Indians and the Pakistanis probably have somewhere right around there, right? That's all China's got, two, 300. So at that time, two. So we just get down to where everybody's got about 200, and then we'll host a new conference. And we'll say, all right, everybody, let's see if we can get down to 100. And then we'll see if we can get down to 50. And we'll see if we can get down to 10. And like, look, Keith, I'm willing to settle for 10. Okay, I don't know. I'm not this. I'm not calling for, again, it's a very stark title, time to abolish nuclear weapons. But whatever, man. If I could get, if, if we, not I, if, if we could have a world where instead of 15,000 nukes, we have 100, then that's significantly better. And it ought to be more than enough to deter any possible adversary. You know, there was a group of Air Force generals did a study. There was one I liked to cite, but I could never find it again. So I'll drop that. But there's certainly one by the Air Force that said they could make do with as little as 300 nukes. Well, we got 1,500 right now. So let's divide by five and then see from there. Right. Let's do that. If we could do that, let's end the Cold War with the Russians. This is what Donald Trump should have done his first day in office was invite Putin to D.C. and say, let's start signing some treaties. We'll shove this Russiagate crap right down these damn Democrats throats. We'll make them oppose a new nuclear arms reduction treaty. And we'll stomp them, you know, something creative like that. Yeah, right. Um, but it is doable. It's not a fantasy. And, and when you really recognize the destructive capability of just one H-bomb. You know, this one on the cover, um, this is the um, Red Wing Apache test from 1956. That's just 1.1 megatons. And that's a one megaton bomb. And um, that's enough to kill all of Houston. Okay, never mind a 10 megaton bomb or a five megaton bomb, something like that. Imagine bomb 10 times that size thing. 
It's enough to kill all of Dallas, all of Houston in just one shot. Uh, and, and then the same for the other side, for Shanghai, all of Shanghai, everyone in Shanghai dead from one bomb, everyone in Moscow or St. Petersburg or wherever. It's just intolerable that this is the situation. We're, we're going to leave it like this for another 70 years, but don't worry. These are never going to go off. We're going to leave it like this for the next 700 years. In fact, this is the future of all of humanity. We're going to have H-bombs pointed at each other's head from now on. And we don't need any new ideas. We're just going to go with that. And done sound right to me. So how's that for one big hell of a long uh, explanation of the entire book for my first answer here? I want to look at the three primary examples that advocates for uh, nuclear armament give when it comes to the importance. Even when they could be skeptical of U.S. foreign policy, they'll say uh, with regard to Iraq being restricted in the early 90s from pursuing a nuclear arms program, Libya in 2003 pursuing disarmament, uh, yes, in 2003, and Ukraine in 1994 with the Budapest Memorandum. So Iraq, Libya, and Ukraine gave up their nukes, got invaded, and got screwed. Therefore, it's not time to abolish nuclear weapons, time to increase the amount that people have to deter aggressors like the U.S. and Putin. Okay, well, those are all interesting questions. Let's start with South Africa that gave up their nukes and nothing happened to them at all. People leave that off the list because... Nothing happened to them at all. So, so inconvenient. Right. Um, now, in the case of Iraq, they had an above board safeguarded IAEA inspected uh, nuclear facility at Osirak. I forget if they were actually a member of the nonproliferation treaty or not. I think they were. They certainly had a safeguards agreement with the IAEA. And then the Israelis bombed it in 1981, flying American jets. And... That drove the program underground. And it really wasn't until the late 80s that Hussein embarked on a secret nuclear weapons program. And he did that, you know, I think starting in like 88. And by the time of Iraq War One, he had a nuclear weapons program, although he was still, I think, probably quite a few years from having even a single uh, atom bomb worth of enriched uranium. He did not have a massive effort. So you know, as far as and, and I, I should go back and really study um, the extent of the weapons program that they did find after Iraq War One. And it's true that the CIA had said, no, nah, there's nothing going on there. And then in the aftermath of Iraq War One, they found it. And there was something going on there, a secret underground nuclear weapons program. Again, the Israelis had driven it underground by bombing the safeguard, a facility where all of their uh, all of their uh, nuclear material was accounted for and prevented from being diverted to any military purpose. So the Israeli strike was counterproductive there. Um, although I don't think that their, their nuke program was an imminent threat to anyone at that time. And if they'd really started to make nukes, uh, to really have a weapons program, not just some kind of minimal uranium enrichment program that would have been found out before they would have been able to make a nuke almost certainly. And again, um, you know, if America had not, if, if the Carter and uh, I didn't, I shouldn't have said again there, except I keep saying this, but not today on your show. If Carter and Reagan had not backed Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran and financed his chemical and biological weapons programs and the rest of that in the 1980s, 
they might have had an entirely different Saddam Hussein to deal with. You know, uh, none of this takes place in a vacuum. And so, you know, why did he think he even needed a nuke at all? Right. Because there was a, you know, revolution next door and the blowback against America's previous coup 25 years before that in Iran and the new Shiite revolution that he felt he had to help us contain and all of these things. So, um, you know, whether that could have been dealt with another way, I think almost certainly. Um, if he had just had a civilian program and had been a nation at peace during the 1980s, then there's no reason to think that he would have gotten that bomb for all the trouble that it would have caused him. And look what happened when they just pretended that he was going to make an atom bomb. They invaded his country. Said, we're not even going to take the chain. He said the 1% chance that he might get his hands on a nuke or something like that. And in the case of Libya, you got to understand, the only reason Gaddafi bought a bunch of black market centrifuge stuff from the Pakistanis, first generation old junk, was simply so that he would have some stuff to trade away. He'd been trying to suck up to the Americans and get back in, be brought back in from the cold, as they say, since at least 1996, according to Gary Hart, who wrote an article in, um, I think it was New York Magazine. Could have been, no, I don't think it was the New Yorker. I think it was New York Magazine. Um, wrote a piece about how the, um, the Libyans had approached him in Athens in 1996, saying, we'll do anything to come and suck up to you. And, and to be brought back in from the cold. And of course, the negotiations under Clinton went nowhere. Um, even though Gaddafi was the first person to put out an Interpol warrant for um, Osama bin Laden that same year uh, in 96. Uh, in fact, America and the MI6 preferred to ally with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group to try to kill Gaddafi during that time. So what he did was he bought a bunch of old junk from AQ Khan's garage sale, and he had it all sitting in crates in Tripoli, and but he didn't have any scientists who were capable of making a nuclear weapon or of designing even a program to engineer how they were would even approach such a subject. And I have, um, at least in the long version of enough already with all my footnotes, I have all the scientists, uh, you know, the real nuclear weapons experts saying they just did not have, I, I guess it's IAEA reports even, they just did not have anyone in Libya capable of turning this thing into a nuclear program of any description, much less a nuclear weapons program. And so it uh, essentially amounted to nothing. It'd be like if somebody, you know, put a bunch of junk from AQCon's garage sale over at your house and be like, oh, look, here, Bush, have a centrifuge and, and then pretend that your war in Iraq is what led me to give up a centrifuge to you, dude. You know what I mean? You need a PR stunt. Here's a PR stunt. But meanwhile, you have no capability of making nuclear weapons any more than or any less than Muammar Gaddafi did, right? It was just a PR stunt. And, and if you remember, you're too young, but for people who remember in 2003, when they did this, this was the narrative. See, the war in Iraq intimidated Libya into giving in. So I know that you keep saying there's not a single silver lining to this absolute catastrophe of an aggressive war, against, pre, supposedly preempting a threat that did not exist in Iraq. But see... We threatened Gaddafi and said, we scared him. See what we did to Saddam? You better give up your centrifuges. When again, that was just a lie. Gaddafi had been begging to come in for the cold by that time for, uh, what, seven years. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, not good at math on the fly. But yeah. 
And so, then yeah, in the case of that, Ukraine, right? yeah. with the Budapest Memorandum. Oh, uh, yeah. So Ukraine. Those nukes never belonged to Ukraine in the first place. Those were the Soviet Union's nukes. And when the Soviet Union dissolved, they took their nukes with them. They did the same thing in Kazakhstan. It's just this make pretend BS. Like, it's just a lie. That, oh, but, yeah, see, Ukraine had all these nukes and they meekly surrendered them and made themselves vulnerable. They had no capability of hanging on to those nukes. The only monopoly on violent force in Ukraine at that time was the Red Army, was the Soviet Union's, you know, KGB and police forces and military forces there. So this is not some voluntary thing of theirs in the first place. They were a satellite of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union took their nukes with them. And then does anybody really think that because they don't got nukes, Putin attacked them? Like people just read Democrat Twitter all day. Is that what you think happened here? Not you, but anyone listening to this? What happened here is that George W. Bush promised to bring Ukraine into NATO. And then Barack Obama did everything to help to speed that process along, including overthrowing the government in a violent street putsch in February 2014 that immediately led to a bloody war that killed 14,000 people in the Donbass in the East when they refused to recognize the legitimacy of the new coup junta that America had installed in power there. So um, as, and look, it's a long and complicated thing. Go put my name in Ukraine into the YouTube, see me give a speech about it or whatever if you want. But Putin said all along and including in his declarations of war, he's got security concerns. Now, if America truly integrates Ukraine into our military alliance, that means we could install missiles just like we promised we never would in Poland. We could install missiles in Kharkiv that could get to Moscow in five to 15 minutes, depending on the make of the missile. A hypersonic could get there in five minutes. He went like this. He says, it's like a knife at our throat. Uh, look at what happened in Crimea. The Russians, first of all, Khrushchev had only given the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine in 1954 as some internal politics in the Soviet Union because he needed the support of the Communist Party of Ukraine to help him take power after Stalin died. So this is, you know, a trade-off. But if I told you that an edict of the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was holy writ, Keith, you just laugh in my damn face, you know? Um, the fact of the matter is Crimea has belonged to Russia since 1783, the same year that John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and John Jay went to Paris to sign the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War with Great Britain. It was still four years before our Constitution was written, much less implemented, you know, ratified and implemented. It's still nine years, uh, eight years before the ratification and implementation of the U.S. Constitution. It's when Catherine the Great stole the Crimean Peninsula with violent force away from the Turks. Okay, so um, if Massachusetts is part of the United States of America, then Crimea is part of Russia. The fact that Khrushchev gave it to, you know, uh, uh, to Ukraine as an administrative detail at the height of the Soviet Union's power in the 1950s is essentially irrelevant. But then after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
the Russians kept their naval base there. It's their only all year round warm water port, which is, of course, at the height of their priority there. And they've had their their Black Sea uh, naval fleet stationed there for a couple of hundred years now. And they simply leased the base from Ukraine. And there were various independence movements in Crimea in the 24 years in between the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, the coup and the war in 2014. And the Russians never really gave them much support and encouraged them to break away or anything like that. Then Obama overthrows the government in a violent street putsch. And then four former presidents issue a letter saying, now is our chance to kick the Russians out of the naval base at Sevastopol. Only then, in the spring of the year 2014, 24 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, do the Russians seize the Crimean Peninsula and say, oh, no, you don't. It belongs to us first, not you. So was it nukes? That was keeping them out the whole time? No, they were the ones with the nukes and Ukraine had no nukes for 24 years. They seized the Crimean Peninsula because Barack Obama threatened to take it away from them. Simple as that. And in fact, there's kind of a funny speech where Putin says, you know, we thought about how nice it might be to go down to Sevastopol to visit our NATO partners at their new naval base for the holidays. But then we thought, nah, you know what would be even nicer than that? We'll keep the base and you guys, our good friends and NATO partners, you come and visit us. So even if we pin this all, Iraq, Libya, and the Ukraine issue on America, you could just make the case that the rest of the world needs nukes to be safe from the American empire. Uh, how is it that these smaller countries can have leverage when operating against India, Pakistan, China, Russia, and the U.S. No, I think that's a real good point. And, you know, like in my argument, America would be having to lead the way in good faith in nuclear disarmament on this issue. We're going to sit on a pile of 7,000 nukes and insist the rest of the world disarm while we still claim the right of preemptive nuclear strikes against non-nuclear weapon states in our official national security our, our yeah. nuclear uh, posture review, as they do every year. Um, you know, by the way, Barack Obama changed that. Barack Obama said that we only reserve the right for nuclear first strikes against other nuclear weapon states or Iran. But if you're any other non-nuclear weapon state, we no longer reserve the right to attack you with a nuke first. Well, Trump reverse that and put it back to the way it was before. In fact, you might remember this one from 2008. Obama said, I'm sending the CIA to Pakistan, the drone war. We're going to escalate the drone war in Pakistan against Al-Qaeda hiding there. And a reporter asked him, I don't know where the reporter got this, but the reporter just said to him, well, geez, Barack Obama, but you wouldn't use nukes on them, would you? And Obama goes, no, I wouldn't use nukes. We're talking about killing tribesmen, you know, one by one or, or 10 by 10 in the federally administered tribal territories in northwestern Pakistan here. Why the hell would I use the H-bombs for that, you know? And then Hillary Clinton attacked him and goes, you see how naive and unprepared Barack Obama is for this job? You don't ever say 
that you won't use nuclear weapons in a first strike against even sub-state actors in tribal territories in a friendly country. You never, ever, ever say who you won't nuke. That's what makes a real qualified presidential candidate like me, Hillary Clinton said. That's, man. So, to answer your question, yeah, does Russia need nukes to keep us out of Russia right now? Yeah, they sure as hell do. And India and Pakistan, North Korea, is their sovereignty protected by their nuclear weapons? And China, for that matter? Yes, it's true. But as you're implying in your question there, we're the only ones who threaten them. Russia and China, look, again, you know, I'm not a utopian here. Maybe if we if we had my wildest daydream come true type nuclear disarmament negotiations here, maybe Russia and China would keep 50 each for each other to keep for the Russians to keep the Chinese out of Siberia and the whatever. I don't know. Maybe Japan will get five to keep China out. But China's not coming. And so if and look, and, and, and China's militarism as it exists now, I'm sorry, it's just true. I'm from here. It's just true that it's all a direct reaction to American provocations from the first Iraq war to Bill Clinton's, uh, you know, naval provocations in 1997 in the Taiwan Strait and um, the, you know, tangling with our Air Force under W. Bush and all these different things have advanced their military doctrine. But for example, if we weren't over there, China's not afraid that Japan is coming, right? The question would be whether, again, the question would be whether in Japan, whether China is coming. And there's no reason to think so. They're, you know, um, not that they don't have some conflicts that need to be resolved, but imagine what is at stake in a war between Japan and China now, uh, even without nuclear weapons at all. Um, that's just, there's, there's gotta be a way to negotiate a resolution. You know, William Jennings Bryan gave this speech back whenever, I don't know, probably gave it a hundred times. Behold a Republic, unlike those evil empires of the old world. And he talks about how, you know, what we should be doing is we should be hosting peace conferences all the time. And because we're this limited constitutional republic way over here, safe in North America, separated from the conflicts of the old world, we don't have a dog in their hunt. So we can just show up and host a peace conference without a conflict of interest. And we can just do the right thing. Hey, India and Pakistan, man, nobody wants to see y'all fight. If y'all really fight, you could kill billions of people through nuclear winter. Okay. We just can't have this. So on behalf of humanity, let's all sit down and figure out something over Kashmir. China, you can come to, let's come to some kind of agreement for limited autonomy and this and that and whatever that everybody can agree on. Same thing with Kaliningrad and Transnistria, right? These uh, officially Russian and, and breakaway pro-Russian provinces in Eastern Europe. Something's going to, we have what they call a frozen conflict unresolved conflict as we've seen just in the last week this could lead to nuclear war right here you had lithuania saying well we're just implementing eu sanctions 
And we're going to cut off the Russians from being able to supply Kaliningrad by railway through their easement across uh, Lithuania, from Belarus uh, through Lithuania. Well, that's a good way to get a war started. And there's no reason for Russia to fight Lithuania, except if they do something stupid like that. And by the way, it was in the New York Times where the Lithuanian, I think, deputy defense minister says, well, Russia would never attack us for this because we're members of NATO. I mean, if we weren't, they probably would. Okay, that's the economic incentives of, of the politics of NATO the way under the current American system. But let's just say you had a president, Paul. And, and the point was to truly, in good faith, negotiate peaceful resolutions to all these conflicts. We take the lead here. And it's just clear. We give a security guarantee. How about the exact opposite of our nuclear first strike doctrine? How about we give our security guarantee to Cuba doctrine? For some reason, Keith, that I'm not sure I understand, when Jack Kennedy promised Khrushchev will never, ever, ever invade Cuba again, that stuck since 1962. And we haven't. Let's give, let's call that the, the Cuba level you know, um, ironclad, absolutely steel-clad security guarantee. And we'll give one to the whole world. We'll never attack you. Not with nukes, not with conventional weapons. But boy, don't you ever mess with us. And we'll be safe over here in North America and screw Alfred McKinder. We don't want to dominate the old world. We don't care about any of that crap anymore. And if that was truly the Paul Doctrine, for the United States of America in the 21st century going forward, then we'd have a whole new situation to have to answer. But you're right. Under the current circumstances, for Joe Biden to insist the world disarm when he's the one holding the H-bomb to everybody's head more than China or Russia or anyone else, then that's just obviously not going to fly. So we would, we would need a whole new way of doing things. Are you surprised at how um, confident NATO members seem after a 20-year NATO war ended with the Taliban taking Afghanistan in 11 days? I mean, they act like they're so powerful and they better not mess with us. And the first time they declare Article 5, it was like the biggest mess that we're totally ashamed of. Why do they have all this confidence after such a black eye? It's a self-licking ice cream cone, man. The more they screw up, the better it is for them. What looks like not working to you looks like, meh, it's still not too bad <laughs> to them, you know, government work. So look, I mean, the first thing they did, and I only belatedly uh, came to this understanding a few weeks ago, um, a couple months ago, it was only two or three weeks after a officially admitting Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic into NATO in 1999 that they launched their attack against Serbia to break off Kosovo, which, of course, is a basket case disaster of a country of an American protectorate right now. And if we left, it'd be broken out right into conflict again. We still have Camp Bond Steel there lording it over those people to this day. Um, then, of course, as you say, Afghanistan, I quote a few different sources in Fool's Aaron talking about this one is uh, from general eikenberry i sent him the book but he didn't respond but he was mostly good on this but i did quote him saying yes that afghanistan is a team building exercise for nato as part of why we're doing this it's just as they used to say in the 1990s out of area or out of business 
we have to find something for NATO to do or else people will think we don't need it for anything. Uh, and then look at their catastrophe in Libya. They promised, and this is a huge part of, of what sabotaged our relationship with Russia, was that Hillary Clinton essentially used and abused and made a chump out of President Dmitry Medvedev. And, uh, you know, old strongman dictator Putin had actually stepped down from the presidency. It was supposed to be from two terms and, and had passed power to and had gone to the everybody knew he's still the kingmaker here, uh, but still, he's not the one in the chair. He went to become the prime minister um, for a couple of years. And then what happened was um, uh, Hillary promised Medvedev that, listen, Gaddafi, we have intelligence and all this that swears Gaddafi's about to murder every last man, woman, and child of Benghazi. We got to stop him. This is your chance to really make nice with us um, on, you know, getting along on the UN Security Council and passing this resolution. I'm sure she probably threatened him. We're going to do it anyway, with or without a resolution. But I forget now if he abstained. Somehow they got China to abstain or even vote for it, too. I need to go back and look at that. Um, I don't know how they got China to stay out of that. They could have easily vetoed it. And they had oil interests at stake, too, at the time. Um, but Medvedev went along with it. And then what did they do? A no-fly zone to protect Benghazi? Of course not. They launched a full-scale regime change war for the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and Anshar al-Sharia and uh, the other groups who were the Libyan veterans of Iraq War II who fought with Zarqali in al-Qaeda in Iraq and Iraq War II had now come home. Remember the same guys, the LIFG, the same guys that even though Gaddafi had a war on bin Ladenite terrorism in the late 1990s, CIA and MI6 still preferred the LIFG in trying to target him as late as 1999-2000. So now here it is after Iraq War II and all the Al-Qaeda guys come home. Zarqawi's guys come home to Libya. Obama takes their side and uses the UN resolution and the no-fly zone as cover to do it. Well, this, of course, makes a complete chump out of Medvedev and discredits him and pissed off Putin, who then came back to power after only one term out. And, you know, essentially on the theory, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself and came back in. And that was the end of the so-called reset. Um, now, it's true that Obama, he did. Putin really did try very hard to work with Obama. He helped prevent the full scale war against um Syria in 2013 by striking the deal for Assad to get rid of all of his chemical weapons um, in exchange for America not attacking then. And he also leaned on the Ayatollah Khamenei to allow his president to seek the Iran nuclear deal with us, which is a huge favor to Barack Obama. Um, and then got nothing but a bunch of crap for it. And of course, um, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that Robert Perry believed that the neoconservatives pushed this plan for the coup in Ukraine, not necessarily like without Obama's permission at all. Uh, he must have known what they were doing and approved it on some level. But Perry believed that the primary reason for the coup in Ukraine, more than any other thing, was to sabotage Barack Obama's growing relationship with Putin. And you might remember, too, that uh, Obama sent John Kerry in 2016 to make a deal with Russia 
that we're going to fight ISIS together in eastern Syria. And then what happened? Ashton Carter, the Secretary of Defense, bombed a Syrian military position the next day and ruined it. Uh, and which was taken, I'm sorry, I'd have to check my footnotes here, but they do exist. This is not just, you know, in the ether. This was came from Obama's people told the media themselves that they thought that the Defense Department deliberately sabotaged them. Imagine the Secretary of Defense, and who the hell is Ashton Carter? You know what I mean? It's not like he's got a ton of political juice. He's just a lobbyist for arms manufacturers. But it's not like he's a huge and famous and powerful name in D.C. like Donald Rumsfeld or something like that. And he just is outright insubordinate. And when, in fact, Barack Obama's the president. John Kerry lost for president, but it's been a senator for 30 years. And, you know, from Massachusetts, there's an extremely powerful and influential uh, Democratic senator is serving as Secretary of State for Obama. They make a deal with Putin. Defense Department vetoes it. You know, this kind of thing. Anyway, Perry believed that the primary reason for the coup in Ukraine was to sabotage Obama's relationship with Putin. And in fact, I'm trying to remember who it was that was writing about, if you listen to the Victoria Newland phone call, where she and Pyatt are plotting the coup and are talking about, you know, pushing the UN, uh, in, you know, to intervene instead of the EU, pushing the EU out of the way and letting this guy Robert Sari from the UN come in uh, and with people from Biden's office to try to glue the coup together and all of these things. I can't remember. I'm sorry who I'm plagiarizing here, man. Um, but I just read this the other day. We're like, and listen to the zeal in her voice on when she is ostensibly in the employ of a president whose policy, his stated policy is to try to get along with Russia. And after all, even his Syria policy was not so much to spite Russia as it was to spite Iran. Now, you know, he was attacking one of Russia's friends, but the idea was, well, eh, what are they going to do about it? And it's not, that's not what it's about. So they shouldn't take it too personally, you know, this kind of idea. Um, but Ukraine, boy, you overthrow the government of Ukraine twice in 10 years, put in a bunch of far rightists from the, you know, National Freedom Party and whatever it is in there, Svoboda, then yeah, you got a, a war and a problem and an end to any pretension of reset uh, between our country and theirs. So you know, it's not it's not an ironclad, uh, you know, a top down order either, you know, under the presidency or under, you know, just dominant power factions in D.C. I mean, there are separate factions with separate interests and apparently they don't mind overriding the president when they feel like they need to. So when it comes to George Bush coming out and saying we want Ukraine and Georgia to potentially join NATO, what do you see that as? Is that him provoking? Is that him just innocently trying to build a peaceful world order because him and Putin were friendly? Putin calls him after 9-11 and makes friends out of him. What is the goal when you see something like that? It's so difficult to explain diplomatically. Yeah, no, I, um, I don't think it was because they were pals. I think by 2008, it was absolutely a hawkish position. The Cheneyites had won that, you know, we don't want a cooperative, a working relationship with these guys. We'd rather have conflict. And 
um, you know, Fiona Hill, who's known as this hardcore anti-Trumper who was in charge of his policy uh, to a degree on the National Security Council. Um, she has said that then um, she was on Bush's National Security Council then. Uh, she confirmed that the intelligence agencies, not just the CIA, but all of them apparently in their consensus, warned W. Bush not to do this. And he did it anyway. Now, this is just four months, three months. It was April of 08. It's just three months after our current CIA director, William Burns, had written the memo, Nyet means Nyet, which we know from the uh, Julian Assange uh, sitting in prison right now, waiting to be um, prosecuted on espionage charges for publishing this information. Um, and this is where Burns met with Lavrov, and Lavrov said, listen, man, very politely, we'll invade and conquer Ukraine before we let you integrate them into your military alliance, bro. Please don't make me do this. Please don't put me in this position. You know where we're at on this. We absolutely can not tolerate Ukraine being brought into NATO. We're just not going to. It says it could cause a civil war and then we would be forced to intervene, which we don't want to intervene. So just, you know, drop it. And then it's just three months later that Bush announces. Now, he wanted to bring them into NATO right then to announce that they were like on the official track to join NATO. And Angela Merkel and I think it was Francois Holland was the president. It might have been Sarkozy. No, no, no. I guess it was Sarkozy then. Um, it just said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And it has to be unanimous um, for a new NATO member to join. So why the controversy over Turkey holding up new membership for Finland and Sweden now. Mm. Um, but uh, so the French and the Germans told Bush, absolutely not. And why? Just for only one reason. Unnecessary provocation against Russia. They are not going to take this well. There was no other reason for it. That was the reason. And Bush went ahead and the so-called compromise was, well, we're going to announce that they're going to be NATO members someday anyway. We're going to go ahead and put that out there. And I think, yes, you're right. I think that, you know, ultimately it was a provocation. It was a way to try to make sure to keep the American and, and uh, Russian relationship on ice. In fact, you know, I've never read this, you know, in any particular claim, but you could argue maybe that this is part of why they were insisting on putting all those anti-missile missiles in Poland and Romania. It's not to protect Europe from Iran. Iran doesn't have missiles that can hit Eastern Europe and they don't have any nuclear missile, you know, nuclear weapons to marry to a missile anyway. At the same time, you could argue there are certainly not enough anti-missile missiles in the tubes to shoot down a barrage of Russian nukes coming in. They've got enough to way overwhelm any of those defenses, right? In fact, Keith, did you see where those the Russian pranksters pranked W. Bush just a few weeks ago, right after his big Freudian slip? They put out a thing where they pretended to be Zelensky, um, asking him questions and all of this stuff. And Bush dismissed Russian concerns over the anti-missile missiles by saying, I'm almost certain, please, brain, don't screw me up on this one. I'm 99%. This is where I saw this. And he dismissed the Russian concerns by saying, come on, it's not like we put enough anti-missile missiles in there to deter against the Russians anyway. So when the Russians say they're concerned about that, I don't take that seriously because there's nothing for them to be concerned about. But the thing is, um, 
as uh, Putin has continued to say over and over again, it's the uh, MK or Mark 41. I'm instructed by a military friend. Uh, they call them the Mark 41, not the MK, the Mark 41 missile tubes, uh, missile launchers that can also fit Tomahawk missiles that can be fitted with hydrogen bombs. And, um, you know, I think currently our Tomahawks are not fitted with hydrogen bombs, but there's supposedly a program to reintegrate those two weapons together again. So this is now, um, you know, maybe not enough to really provide for any kind of meaningful first strike on Russia that would help us win a war. We could certainly see how it might be just enough to provoke Putin and make him angry and prevent, um, you know, uh, further rapprochement from being able to, you know, lead the, the discussion and the policy. And we insist we're doing this and we know that that will prevent him from taking a more pro-American posture in response. Um, they're probably not good for much more than destroying diplomacy, Keith. Yeah, I really like the point you made about uh, how America can lead the way when it comes to potentially one of these inspection treaties. So A can inspect B, B can inspect C, and C can inspect A, sort of having something like this. It's so difficult to find something that a lot of Americans agree on. To I mean, to even debate whether or not something is constitutional, a lot of people don't regard the Constitution as legitimate. It was written by idiots uh, who were racist and self-interested. So it's so hard for us to find a pinpoint to which we can all sort of move towards something we can all have in common. I think this could potentially be it. However, when I see someone like Jake Sullivan at the Council on Foreign Relations or Anthony Blanken on Stephen Colbert's show, I see that it looks like we're kind of run by like total idiots almost who are either really stupid or they're just stupid in front of the cameras because they have to meet the lowest common denominator. Why do you think it is that such average boring people make it to such high positions of influence? Yeah, man. I mean, it's the Peter principle kind of a thing, right? It's, you know, those are the kind of people who want those positions in the first place, and then they get promoted right up to the spot where they're just not capable of doing their job well. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, and it's, look, it's, I mean, the simplest explanation, right, is that our national government has been simply captured by these interests, right? And so that's who they want to run things, is people who, you know, I, I just did an interview yesterday with this guy, um, Steinbach, all about the Center for a New American Security and um, the, uh, oh my God, it's on the tip of my tongue. The, um, the group, I'm sorry, the um, what, West Exec, West Exec uh, lobbying group was created essentially by the guys from the Center for a New American Security. This is all overlap. Michelle Flournoy and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan's involved. And all these guys are just paid you know, half a million dollar or more salaries per year to promote the interests of the arms industry. It's just as simple as that. That's who finances every important think tank in D.C. That's who pays all their salaries. Um, it's like the old joke about if they had to wear um, sponsor jackets like a NASCAR driver and people always say, oh, it would say STP and Exxon and whatever. But it, what it would say is Lockheed and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and of course, all the biggest banks and it would have the Saudi and the Israeli lobbies on there and this kind of thing. And you can think of them, you know, just as you would think of somebody in a 
professional paid commercial on TV. Like this is an actual, yeah. this is not actually a human telling me a thing. This is an actor reading a thing to me, which is different, right? If you look at Diane Feinstein and you go, well, she's not a woman with opinions. She is a front man for her husband's corporation, which runs, he's dead now, but Richard Bloom was an arms uh, uh, guy or a, a military contractor. I don't know if, you know, um, I don't know if he provided mercenaries or what. I think they did some construction work and then also, you know, some other outsourced jobs. Um, but his corporation made billions of dollars off of the government. So in that way, you can just look at Dianne Feinstein, not really as her own person, but just as a front for him. Um, and then you could look at the whole Senate that way. Like, which corporation are you from? Instead of what state are you from? You know, and who are, whose interests are you here to represent? And, you know, the whole thing is just completely wrecked that way. Um, you know, the neoconservative movement. Um, Andrew Coburn, I think, crystallized this the best, that it's where the Israel lobby meets the military industrial complex. You know, the bankers and the oil men already had the Council on Foreign Relations, but the arms dealers needed their own eggheads. They didn't have any eggheads. They had a bunch of engineers, but they needed a bunch of people to write studies about why we need them. And so they came across Richard Pearl and company and said, oh, this is perfect, right? Here, we'll give you the money. You found the think tank and write the study and explain why we need you. And it was Lockheed's Bruce Jackson that financed Bill Crystal's entire career, you know, over at the Weekly Standard and all those things. That's, you know, and the project for a new American century. Um, and, and, you know, there was a time, I think Jim Loeb said this, uh, there was a time where about four out of five of these think tanks were just a piece of paper in Bill Crystal's desk drawer. But then you have, you know, a few neocons at each one, all writing position papers in the name of the different institution. And you just flood the zone with it. And it creates this giant echo chamber. And they out Council on Foreign Relations, the Council on Foreign Relations. And then, of course, Abrams and Boot and a bunch of the neocons are at the CFR now, setting the tone there now. So they won that war. And, and that was where their money came from. It was Lockheed and Northrop Grumman who paid their way. And uh, speaking of Bill Crystal, you you were slandered unfairly by a woman named Kathy Young. Here she is. Uh, she is discussing a debate you had with her at Porkfest. I'm just going to read this section. I want you to respond. The gist of my introductory remarks was that I can respect a principled anti-interventionist position with regard to Russia and Ukraine, but that unfortunately anti-interventionists often seem unable to defend this position without, one, denigrating pro-freedom aspirations in the neighboring countries the Kremlin seeks to bully, and two, recycling lies and distortions that come straight from Kremlin propaganda machine. Then for the next hour, Horton proceeded to do exactly that. First of all, how dare you? Second of all, how do you respond? That's funny. Well, she's right that she spent her entire opening argument telling everyone what they were about to hear me say and why they shouldn't listen to it. She did not make the case for why we should arm Ukraine at war with Russia at all. She couldn't. And in fact, all she gave it was a throwaway line at the end. So, yes, I think we should give them arms and intelligence. Thank you very much. And sat down. Now, I actually, in my response, I cut her some slack and said, well, you know, I'm sure she's really short on time, but you notice all it got was a throwaway line there. 
nothing about the risks and rewards whatsoever about how to even think about what's happening in the war so far or any of this stuff. Um, and I was just being polite because, of course, she had plenty of opportunity to make the case. She just didn't. She essentially told him he's about to say all of this stuff, which, of course, she knows what it all is because she knows it's all true. And then so she goes, but you shouldn't listen to him because it's not really true because it's what Putin told him to say or some kind of thing, which is, of course, completely stupid. Um, and then what by I denigrated the pro freedom aspirations of the people of Ukraine. I don't remember that. I don't think that came up. Um, she was trying to deny that the radical right played a meaningful role at all on the Ukrainian side, which was completely preposterous. So for me to point out the reality of that is to denigrate the pro-freedom aspirations of Ukrainians who actually are not radical rightists. Well, that's not true, right? If I say to you, hey, Keith, there are right-wingers in Arizona who are bad. I don't think that really reflect, reflects on you at all, my friend. Like, what, you live near them or something? I don't know. Um, I, that just that issue didn't come up. That's just not true. Um, and then as far as the points I was making, well, you know, it's going to be another week before Reason puts out the video. They have to kind of produce it with their B-roll and camera angles and Gillespie's introduction and all those things. So it's going to be another week, and then you can judge for yourself, um, you know, the arguments I made. But... You know, just for one example, I mean, I just read a quote this morning from Jose Nino, this uh, great kind of anti-war right winger, had a piece on his Substack about how they're trying to, um, uh, what was his phrase? I forgot, but they're, you know, laundering the Azov Battalion and try whitewashing them. And one of the things is the Azov Battalion has now changed their patch and they've now replaced the Vuls angle, which is looks like that capital N with the line through the middle of it which comes from the Nazis, and they've now replaced that with a trident, which is something that, you know, is also a white supremacist symbol in some places, but is a Ukrainian symbol, apparently going back to whatever antiquity that has less Nazi connotations to it, they've decided. And then the quote, he quotes from the New York Times that they have removed the Nazi insignia from their jackets, that had given the Russians the opportunity to push this ridiculous propaganda about what Nazis they are. Well, if they're not Nazis, how come they were wearing Nazi insignia on their jackets, New York Times? That was giving the Russians the opportunity to tell that lie? But that's just ridiculous. And as I said in the debate, you can look up the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the BBC and Channel 4 and whatever you got since 2000, uh, since uh, uh, 2014, between then and now, covering what a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis the Azov Battalion are. Everybody knows it. There's no secret about it. She tried to say it was the Russian side that were the Nazis and that the white supremacists are traveling all around the world to come and fight with the Russians against the Ukrainians. Well, that's just a damn lie. In fact, I have a book here. I've only just begun to get into From the Fires of War, Ukraine's Azov Movement and the Global Far Right. As we know, radical white supremacists from the United States and all across Europe have come to Ukraine for years to fight on the side of the Nazis against the Russians in the East. And this includes uh, an excellent uh, three or four part series at 
the intercept of all places, which didn't refuse to cover the Syrian war, except to let Murtaza Al-Qaeda uh, over there spin for the Jabhat al-Nusra the whole time and refused to cover the Ukraine war because Pierre Omidyar's conflict of interest there in helping sponsor the coup of 14. And so, but all of a sudden they got this four part series about how you got literal jihadists from the Syria war traveling to Ukraine to fight with the Nazis against the Russians in the Donbass. It's like a four part series all about it. And she actually said at one point in the debate, well, I don't want to talk about the Azov Battalion. And then I interrupted her and said, oh, of course you don't want to talk about the Azov Battalion. And they don't make your position look very good at all, do they? You know, tell me this. On a scale of one to ten, how much do these guys love Hitler? <laughs> because the answer is ten, and they've said it over and over again. There's just no point in denying it. Anyone listening to you and me talk about this right now can just type in Azov and Hitler into their favorite brand of search engine and you'll find them saying, yeah, no, he had the right idea. You find where, you know, one of the co-founders of the Svoboda, Svoboda Party actually has set up the Joseph Goebbels Center on Political Information in Ukraine. He named it after Goebbels. Um. So, yeah, it is what it is. And and I think it's hilarious that she immediately, you know, knowing that reason takes a week and a half to put out these Soho Forum videos, she immediately went and wrote why it ain't her fault. She lost 99% to 1% in this live debate. And she goes and writes it for Bill Crystal's bulwark. And, you know, I was too polite to have asked in the debate, don't you think that once you start writing for Bill Crystal, you have to stop writing for Reason Magazine and, and claiming to be a libertarian in any way whatsoever? We all disavow you. You know, Kathy Young is a liberal Democrat. That's what she is. You can go read. It's all half woke and half pro-war. She's a liberal Democrat. She's not a libertarian. She doesn't believe in liberty. You know, somebody posted Tom Woods was ridiculing her on Twitter and Chris Baker, who's a Texas libertarian, he goes, she's been betraying us all along. Here's her signature article from 2001. And there she is in October 2001 saying, if there's no atheists in foxholes, maybe there's no true libertarians in a time of terrorism. And she's saying, we're going to have to accept that. Um, one, forget blowback. Any libertarians telling you that Al-Qaeda attacked us because of what we did to them first, that's a lie. They hate who we are. And the proof of that is they attacked the World Trade Center, which has nothing to do with our foreign policy and is purely just a symbol of capitalism and freedom. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, that's what the Nelson and David named after the Rockefeller brothers, um, you know, the 25 the year president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And, and his brother who wrote the UN Charter, the architects of the American world empire. Yeah, no, they don't. those towers don't have the slightest thing to do with American foreign policy as a symbolic target whatsoever. No, of course not. Nor um, does the Pentagon. Yeah, oh, definitely not the Pentagon either. Um, and so she wrote, literally she wrote Reason Magazine. And I don't know, I like Nick Gillespie. Every time we meet, I, I, I get along with the guy, but he published this thing and he was the editor and he published this essay by Kathy Young saying, now that September 11th has happened, libertarianism is canceled. And we're gonna have to get used to the government reading oh all of our God. emails, uh, maybe abolishing encryption, which encryption always made her nervous anyway, that people could encrypt things, because what about terrorism? And so, you know, we're going to have to go to war and we're going to have to accept these restrictions on our freedom. Kathy Young, Reason Magazine, October, 2001. 
right? When Harry Brown was saying, hell no. When Ron Paul was saying, hell no. When Jacob Hornberger was saying, hell no. And Ramonda was saying, hell no. That was her take. Was, yep, got to do what you got to do. Yeah, well, uh, encryption is uh, uh, important against uh, the terrorist government when you have to keep yourself safe from them. Uh, she had, uh, she also said in this, I, and I don't want to spend uh, any more time on this. I know you've given me an hour. Thank you for your patience. Here, here Just look I'm at this to. weaseliness. Yup, that makes a lot of sense. If you give people weapons, they'll want to fight and die in a completely unreasonable war when they could negotiate a much better peace. Not, of course, addressing the fact that Zelensky's enslaved the male population, not allowing them to leave Ukraine and conscripting them. How is this weaseliness uh, g getting attention at Reason and the, well, Bill Crystal? but uh, why is uh, th this the method of debate instead of, uh, instead of logic or persuasion? How does she get so much attention? I mean, I have no idea. I've always absolutely hated her guts. And I couldn't say that in a Oxford style debate under Gene Epstein rules. But I mean, to me, she's just a mangy old mutt. And I always had the greatest time reading Justin Romando, taking her to the woodshed over the years. She's absolutely horrible on everything. And, you know, I think, well, look, she's had to go right for the bulwark because nobody in our movement wants anything to do with her. And in fact, somebody told me she doesn't even write for reason anymore, but I'm not sure that's true. Um, but um, look, I mean, she had to race to put this article out for the bulwark to try to cover for the fact that when the video comes out, we're going to see. And and frankly, like, I think there are quite a few different claims in there. For one thing, she puts in quotes uh, that I accuse the government there being a Nazi junta. But that's not true. And I don't ever use that term because I'll tell you exactly what term I do use. And you've heard me use it before. A coup d'etat junta. The new coup junta. The people of the East refused to accept the authority of the new coup junta. Which, yes, was put in place by a bunch of street tough Nazis. The right sector and the C-14 um, were the ones who did essentially did the street putsch uh, in, on, on the night of February the 21st. 2014. I never said that Arseny Yatsenyuk was a Nazi, but he was from a very right-wing nationalist party, although Yatsenyuk himself wasn't a Nazi. And, and Poroshenko, the first president, I never said he was a Nazi. Um, I never said it was a Nazi regime or Nazi junta, but she put that in direct quotes. Um, when what I called it was a coup junta, meaning a completely illegal one that overthrew a democratically elected government. And yes, is completely, you know, has been and still is riddled with national socialists, proud ones. Um, so there's things like that. And I think once the video comes out, if anyone wants to go through and say, you know, do a comparison of Kathy Young's claims about what I said compared to what I actually said. I mean, even during the debate, Keith, I started out by saying I absolutely condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine without reservation. I don't care. And, and you know me, dude. I don't pander to anybody. I don't give a damn. I just called her a mangy old mutt right to you a second ago, right? I don't care, um, which I do think that about her. She's disgusting and pathetic. Um, but uh, I don't mind condemning Putin for launching this war because I do condemn it. What he did was wrong. You don't launch a war. You don't start a war, no matter who you are. 
And the fact that I make the case probably better than Putin for why this is all America's fault for, for provoking him into doing it is still beside the point. As I say, his case against us is rational. That doesn't mean it's a reasonable argument for starting a war. It's not. And I have not done enough hard work on this, um, but I, I can steal a couple of ideas from, um, from uh, oh, I have one of my own, and two I can steal from Aaron Mate here. One thing he could have done is he could have cut off all natural gas to Europe, all of it, and just said, all right, dude, in the middle of the wintertime too. You want to mess with me, Germany? This is what you get. If you don't stand up to America now, you're going to freeze in the dark, pal. He could have done that. He could have, um, as um, uh, uh, Aaron Mate, one of his ideas was he could have, oh, no, you know what? I think that was Aaron Mate's idea. My idea, that was one of Aaron's. My idea was he could have threatened to just veto all kinds of things in the UN Security Council until he gets his way on issues related and not until he gets his way on this. Aaron also said that what he could do is he could say, bring in peacekeepers from some third state that doesn't have a dog in the fight that's like friendly to Russia, like India, for example. We'll have Indian troops stand on the border of the Donbass to prevent the, the uh, essentially to force Kiev to implement Minsk too, to prevent them from being able to carry on the so-called low-level fighting in the east of the country and finally really bring the war to the end to an end in the east that kind of thing and look i'm not talking about america getting involved at all i'm talking about what he could have done um to put you know neutral forces in there some kind of thing in other words and, and there must be more ideas too right in other words he did not exhaust every option he very well may have been feeling exasperated and it very it is absolutely true that Biden refused to negotiate with him in good faith and that America told the Ukrainians not to negotiate in good faith to prevent the war. I mean, Zelensky has explained that, that they told him he said that, in, you know, out loud that they told him we're not really going to bring you into NATO. But don't say that we're refusing to concede an inch on this. And even if it ends up leading to war, we're not giving in on that issue, even though we're not really going to let you in either. Um, and, you know, he's explained that. So um, anyways, and then, and in fact, I think in my rebuttal, I think I did it again. I said, you know, damn him for doing this. And at one point I said, um, if I have a dog in this fight at all, it's on Ukraine's side, not Russia's side. My wife has family there still. Um, and in fact, she has some family inside Russia, a kid who could get conscripted and be forced to fight and get killed in this war on the Russian side. So I'm absolutely anti-war um, from on that Russian point of view side. I don't want them to win. I want them to stop the war immediately. This young man's life is in danger. And then all of these people in uh, Odessa, my wife's people who are still there, um, who, you know, there have been there's been some shelling in Odessa. The worst of the war hasn't gotten there so far. I'd like to see an end of the war right now. Um, and uh, And as far as like, you know, morality goes and whatever, my heart is with the civilian population of Ukraine. The civilian population of Russia isn't threatened other than the young men being conscripted. Um, but the civilian population of Ukraine, they're the only white hats in this story, right? Um, not the militaries of either side. So that's where my sympathies lie. But also my sympathies lie with the truth and with the reality and the, the real context of what's going on here.
So then she gets up in her closing and says, oh, well, I guess Scott thinks that Putin is just a perfect little angel who never hurt anyone. And he just believes everything that Putin says. But the only times that I quoted Putin was when he was saying, I take this to be a threat and I'm warning you. Right. I wasn't saying we know that a thing is true because Putin said it was true. Like, for example, I brought up a, a Bill Clinton's support for the Chechens in 1999. And I said, and Putin cited this, too, in his declaration of war and said, you think we've forgotten that we have it. But I also said, I have all these sources. I wasn't citing him as a source before I said that he remembers that and cited it in his declaration of war. I said, I have all these other sources, too, um, which I didn't cite in the moment. But if you've read Fool's Aaron, you know, I already cite in there um, Colleen Rowley and Stratfor saying that Bill Clinton and the Washington Post. Now, the Washington Post didn't admit the CIA role, but they said the Saudis are doing the whole thing. Well, that's the CIA, dummy. And then there's Stratfor that says it was um, the CIA doing it. And by the way, funny story, I couldn't find it at WikiLeaks and I was going crazy. You know, the Stratfor emails that are leaked on there. And I was going crazy. Somebody confronted me on Twitter was like, hey, you said it was in the Stratfor WikiLeaks and I can't find that anywhere. And I was like, what? I don't get that footnote wrong. I know. And I went, I couldn't find it either. And I was going crazy. So then I took WikiLeaks out of my search. And oh, that's right. It's right there on Stratfor's website. It's not on the WikiLeaks. It's right there on Stratfor's website. You can find it right this second that Bill Clinton backed the Chechen terrorists against Russia in 1999. And then now I got a new, even better, badder ass or source than that, that you can find reprinted at scotthorton.org slash fair use. It's by Yosef Bodansky who was a, uh, the chief investigator for the Senate, I think, Intelligence or Armed Services Committee. And he wrote this massive thing all about it. Um, that's, you know, the going to be now the premier source. And remember, by the way, the Colleen Rowley article about this, you know who Colleen Rowley is. She was the lawyer for the FBI in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who wanted to bust Zacharias Musawi because he wanted to learn how to fly a plane, but he didn't want to know how to take off or land one. And they had connections. They connected him to his brother, to the jihad in Chechnya. But then what happened, Keith? FBI headquarters said, we like the jihadists in Chechnya. So his tie to them doesn't count as a, as a tie to international terrorism. So you can't get your foreign intelligence surveillance warrant to search his computer. And we know now that once they did search his computer, it led directly to the hijackers in Florida. And they could have stopped the September 11th attack. But they said, no, when, when, when suicide bombers working for Osama bin Laden fight in Chechnya, they're moderate rebel heroes and we love them. And so warrant application denied. They weren't even allowed to take it to the court. Their supervisors at the FBI and Department of Justice wouldn't even let them take it to the FISA court because that was Bill Clinton's covert op at the time. And, and then I go, yeah, and, uh, and Putin said that that still pisses him off too. And she goes, oh, you believe him? Yeah, I believe him when he said that something makes him mad. I believe him when he says, you know, I could be in Kiev in two weeks. And if you try to bring Ukraine into NATO, that's exactly what I'll do. Yeah, I believe that. I believe his threats. I, Not I got the same thing from my uh, Pulse nightclub video. They're like, oh, so you just take the words of terrorists like Omar Mateen? It's like... 
Yeah, look, look at his words. He's saying like, you know, they they murdered friends of mine, a, a guy named uh, Wahid. Uh, they uh, are bomb. They're uh, planning with the Russians to uh, bomb places in Syria. They're killing people in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they're like, oh, you you believe that, don't you? Uh, isn't that like the most believable thing in the world? Yeah, yeah you and, believe and they take TV it as when you they being say, a, yeah, yeah. TV says he hates gay people, so I'm gonna take the word of these known proven liars who have no evidence whatsoever that that was his motive at all, and I'm gonna take their word over the words of the guy who goes, "Here's my motive," and then exclaims his motive over the course of two and a half hours while the cops wait in cowardly terror outside. All these people are bleeding to death like Uvalde. Um, you know, it's just. Yeah. And by the way, and we know now because it came out at the trial, sworn testimony from the feds themselves admitted that Mateen wanted to attack Disney World, not because of how gay it is, but because that's where all the civilian targets are. But he realized that they have too tight of security there. You got to get yeah. through 10 rings of goons before you can get to the fun part of the amusement park. Right. So. Then he typed in nightclub into Google on his phone and Pulse nightclub was the first one that came up. So he went there. And then when he walked up, he said, where are all the girls? Because he didn't realize, he didn't know why it was almost entirely men. And there were some women in there, but it was almost entirely men there. Um, so that had absolutely nothing to do. And what did the government say? The government said he did this one because uh, radical Islam says that you have to hate and murder gay people. And two, because Mateen was gay. And so he had to hate and murder himself because of his Freudian self-hatred over the thing, over him not supposed to be. This is all a lie, 100% of a lie. But no, the transcript of him telling the 911 operator and the transcript of what he wrote on Facebook about why he did this, you should definitely dismiss that when he says, I'm doing this because Barack Obama is killing women and children in Syria, full stop. So do you believe uh, Putin uh, asked Bill Clinton if Russia could join NATO in 1999? And yes, what do you think Clinton should have done? There's there's good sourcing on that. And I have to say, man, at the time I was a New World Order kook. And this is what I thought was the whole game of the New World Order. Get it? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Now we become more like the Russians and they become more like us. And we join our forces together into the one world white army of the north and then attack Islamic South Asia. Or China, um, although they got nukes, so hope not that. And that was what, and look, that was not complete BS. I mean, I, I was wrong, and that was not the way it was heading. But, you know, Bill Clinton's guy, Strobe Talbot, who led NATO expansion, he had written in Time Magazine in 1992, the birth of the global nation. And soon all nations on earth will recognize a single global federal authority overall, etc. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of indications during the Clinton years that there were people who really were pushing for world federalism and ultimately for bringing Russia into NATO. And they created the NATO-Russia Council. But what I did not understand was that the right wing in the United States, and I don't mean in America, like the people, I mean the militarists, the military industrial complex side, wanted nothing to do with them because they need Russia to have an adversary. Uh, they need and and, you know, I think even in the Pentagon, too, the idea was, you know, we could tell the Germans what to do. But if we bring the Russians into our military lines, they're going to have a say. We're going to have to cooperate with them. Well, we're going to standardize our two militaries together. Um, but then they're going to really have a voice and a veto, especially all the nukes they have and everything. 
they're not going to turn control over all that to us. It would be much more of a partnership rather than an American dominated order. And they just didn't want to do that. They weren't willing to do that. And that's something that I'm working on. And that's one of the chapters uh, in the book that I'm working on now about the background of this was, you know, the, the different um, tides and pushes inside the government over whether they were going to bring Russia into NATO or whether they were not and et cetera. Now, he also asked Bush in July of 2001, hey, man, what about us joining NATO? I guess he asked Colin Powell. And then they just didn't even answer him. They just didn't even want to talk about it at all. Um, and then that was their plan was to, you know, they had John Bolton in there. The plan was to tear up the anti-ballistic missile treaty and expand um, uh, so-called missile defenses and all of these things over Russia's dead body. And what are they going to do about it and continue on NATO expansion? Um, you know, I think it's true that on the American side that in a way they believe their own BS about, look, man, we told you a hundred times, this is a defensive alliance. And if we bring your entire country, bring every single nation in Eurasia into our defensive alliance, except you, it's still defensive. As long as you don't attack anybody, everything will be fine. We'll never attack you. Why would we do that? I think they believe that. I think during the Cold War, they believe that as well. We're not going to do a first strike against the Soviet Union. We're just here to keep them out of Western Europe. But then as Ray McGovern tells me, and it's in the book, when the Soviet Union fell and they went over there and they talked to the Soviets, they said, man, we weren't going to invade Western Europe. We were afraid that you guys were going to hit us first. We weren't, we had no plan whatsoever to attack you guys. You know what I mean? So this kind of thing is, again, it's a self-licking ice cream cone, right? It's built in to the frame of the thing is that, of course you need us. Now let's figure out why you need us. In fact, you know, at the end of um, 2018, no, the end of 2019, the New York Times ran a story about how they had a big emergency NATO meeting about how they don't have anything to do and they don't have a purpose in the world. And they're afraid that the pressure is going to increase on them. You know, Trump had made some signals that were wildly misinterpreted to mean that he really meant to leave NATO or anything like that. But they, you know, saw this sort of negative pressure against them. And they said, we need a new reason to exist. So they held a big meeting, an emergency meeting, they called it. And they decided at the end, the new reason for NATO is China. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization's new enemy is in the South Pacific. And out of area or out of business. So let, we had to find something to do. It's China. Now, luckily, this Ukraine thing came up and they're able to say, oh, no, they're protecting Western Europe from Russian advances. But, of course, we can see. And, you know, people got mad at me for interviewing William Arkin because he was telling a lot of, you know, sort of our government's current narrative side of the story about how bad the Russians are doing in Ukraine and stuff like that. But I like William Arkin even when I disagree with him. Because I think he's an honest guy, not a liar. I think he's wrong sometimes, but I think that he'll tell you exactly what he thinks. So his narrative was, man, the Russians suck and the Ukrainians are kicking their ass. But then what's his conclusion from that? His conclusion from that, as he told me in that interview, was, well, apparently NATO doesn't need one more dime. 
not one more dime. And apparently Russia is no threat to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, whatsoever. They're a threat to NATO, none whatsoever. Because look at what a poor job they're doing fighting in Ukraine, right? So, you know, take or leave his interpretation of exactly how well they're doing or not in Ukraine. I think, you know, people who tend to side more with the Russians aren't doing that bad narrative will admit that they probably shouldn't have invaded from 17 different directions at once or whatever it was, and that they did suffer some major setbacks um, in some places. Um, uh, but I don't think anybody argues whether they rule almost the entire Donbass at this point and that Ukraine is never getting it back. So, you know, but are they marching all the way to the Dnieper River? Are they marching all the way to Moldova and Romania and Poland? Hell no, they're not. They're just not. And they have no capability of doing so, uh, evidently. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's the good news, right? Is um, just like back in the days of the Soviet Union, that Red Army was mostly just a paper tiger. Um, and, and the current Russian army is as well. So, you know. Time is on their side in this one, but do they really pose an external threat to anyone else? Probably not. And I forgot what the question was now. Sorry. Was a long uh, it, th that's totally fine. Uh, the book is Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Available now. Links will be in the description below. Scott Horton, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Keith, for having me.